0: Let's pray. Father, just thank you for the joy it is to be able to gather together as people who know you and love you, as uh, people who recognize our need for you to move and to work in our hearts and our lives. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word has power as it is proclaimed. I pray, Lord, even this morning as we read from your scriptures that you would move in our hearts and our lives, but you'd open up our eyes to see you. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we're transformed as we behold the glory and the wonder of who you are. And I just ask in some way that you'd help us to see you more clearly and to love you more deeply. Let your kingdom come and your will be done in each of our hearts and our lives and our midst this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 13 of course is a portion of scripture in this book where we encounter what's often termed the first missionary journey of Paul. Now it's really Paul and Barnabas at this stage and in the latter missionary journeys Paul will be accompanied by others. But this is a, a period in time where thinking it's around about 46 to 48 AD, the historians would tell us. And Acts chapter 13 and 14 detail this first missionary journey. And we, of course, looked last week at the reality, beginning of 13, that there's the church of Antioch that has been brought together, that the Lord's used to launch this missionary endeavour. And then in verse 4, again, Luke underlines this reality that Barnabas and Saul... As they are ordered at this particular point in their journey, it says they're sent out by the Holy Spirit. So he makes it clear that this is the Lord's intention. He's led them out to accomplish all that the Lord desires to do. And we wrestled through and hopefully learnt and allowed the Lord to challenge us in the area of what it means to be a Spirit-led people. What does it actually look like practically for us to be led by the Spirit of the Lord in our lives, from the big things to the little things. And believe it or not, there's at least two other sermons by way of introduction that we could cover here that I'm going to spare us all and pass over, because there is just... It's one of those portions of Scripture where there's far more than we can possibly cover in our time. In fact, I'd encourage you to read ahead if you can in coming weeks, just so you can get a a sense. We'll be um, picking through some of the, the pieces as we go and trying to cover most of those gaps. But it'd be well worth your while reading ahead, and then we can come and focus on specific portions as we get together. But one thing we haven't done yet is develop anything in relation to the Apostle Paul himself. And there's all sorts of literature out there. In fact, he's probably the best known and most prolifically written about figure in certainly New Testament theology. There's many, many books there. It's fascinating to learn his history, what shaped him, and we do know quite a bit scripturally, biblically speaking, who he was and his upbringing. And of course, he talks about that in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. It gives us insight into who he is. And i going to spare us some of those details, as important and as interesting as I'm sure we'd find them. There's also been this fascinating journey in the life of Paul, and we've seen some of that already as we've gone through this particular book. We've seen Paul as this zealot, this persecutor of the church. We, of course, um, read through this encounter that he has with the Lord on the road to Damascus as the Lord sovereignly encounters, uh, encounters him. And changes the direction of his life. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, he's now spent around about, we believe, 10 years in the wilderness, so to speak, with the Lord working and teaching and shaping his life until we read Barnabas, of course, went to find Paul, brought him into the church, which was at Antioch. And he spent at least a year, possibly up to a few years, two years teaching in the church. So it's been this process For Paul, of going through this encounter with the Lord, of being saved, if you like, being brought into the church and serving, serving as a teacher for some period of time, and now we've seen him sent. And even there, there's a a wonderful sermon in the way that the Lord works in all of our lives, going from that process of being saved, encountering his grace, serving, and then all of us, of course, are called to be the sent ones, sent not just within the confines of the four walls of the church but wherever it is that you find yourself whether it's looking after young children at home whether it's in the workplace whatever field and sphere of influence the lord would plant you in there is that sense on every believer of being those that the lord has saved and has sent to accomplish his desires so there you go there's two sermons in two minutes but it's not our focus for this morning. We're going to try and make a bit of traction here as we read through this account. So let's jump in, Acts 13, verse 4. It says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of the God, of the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet, named bar He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, lots of names in here, the magician, for that, which is, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. An interesting phrase there, so he's not just acting or reacting out of his his own impositions here. It says, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looks intently at him and says, this is Paul's pastoral tenderness coming out here, it says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked The straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Fascinating picture, isn't it? He who brought spiritual darkness to the environment around him is now being led through physical darkness by others. And it says in verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. What an interesting encounter. The first encounter we read is Paul and Barnabas head off on their missionary journey. They're preaching the gospel. They're called in by a man of some repute and renown. And as they're brought in to preach the gospel, there's this Jewish false prophet. What a contradiction in terms that is. A Jewish man who was bringing spiritual darkness into the environment around him. And of course, we see this insight into the nature of Paul. He wasn't having anything to do with it. So he literally says, "Filled with the Holy Spirit. He calls this thing out. He says, "This, this is to stop. We're not having any more of this. And he pronounces a physical blindness upon him. You know, I don't think Paul is the sort of guy who you'd Um, readily or willingly line up in the, uh, the prophetic prayer line and say Paul have you got a word from the Lord for me unless you were really ready to be shaken up but you know what it shows me it shows me and it's it's fascinating I think this process that as Paul comes to preach the gospel there's something in him that is so stirred not just in and of himself but it says the Holy Spirit stirred in his heart and Not only is he stirred, but he addresses that very thing. So first of all, I would I would say and encourage us with this. You know, the Lord is not removed from the circumstances and situations around us. The whole sermon there as well. But the 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 Lord and the Holy Spirit, it says at times, is is grieved. He's grieved. His heart is moved. He's he's angered. Like there's. I think sometimes we have this, this perspective that the Lord is a little. Removed, You know, we're kind of here and he's not really interested in, in the affairs. But it says Paul, he, he gets this sense of the heart of the Holy Spirit and he's so moved by the wickedness and by the, the spiritual blindness that's on the people uh, around him. And he doesn't just ignore that, does it? He? he says, no, we've got to actually address and deal with the circumstance and situation. And I just wonder whether there's... And we've talked ad nauseum about the fact that... Uh, You know, there's debate between whether this is a prescriptive or descriptive book. I wouldn't say that this is always the model, but there's a time, I think, for us to be moved by that which is going around us enough to say, Lord, we're not not having any more of this. not having any more of this influence of spiritual blindness and this thing that's just come over people, and we're going to just speak to it and rebuke it and tell it to be God. And it would be easy for us to digress into a bit of a message about spiritual warfare. Of course, uh, Ephesians 6 talks about there being a reality, that there is a wrestle, that our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, authorities in spiritual places. But I bring it to your attention to say there is, I believe, at times, the need for us to be moved enough by the things and the junk and the rubbish and the spiritual blindness that's around us they were actually willing to deal with it. I think at times we're far more in the camp. I was talking to a um, a lovely Christian family recently and they're sharing just some of the struggles that our young people grow up in, in the environment and the, the bombardment of social media and all that's around. And they said, you know, it's it's probably more concerning for us, not just all the stuff that they're being fed, but there's, there's something with the generation that even as a Christian family that we've, we've raised and we've taught them the truth, that they're just not as moved as we would like them to be by some of these issues around them. And sometimes it is we, we just reflect the temperature of the culture around us, don't we? Rather than saying, Lord, stir up our hearts and show us the things that you're not happy with and not pleased with. And then would we be a people who are full of the Holy Spirit to be able to deal with and to address, not just to... And it's interesting to me that that was the catalyst, certainly for the proconsul, to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that that Paul deals with this, he gets rid of the stuff and all of a sudden there's then an openness for the gospel to be received in the hearts and the lives of those whom he was preaching to. So let's continue on. We're making track. We've done 12 verses. So it says, Paul and his companions, this is verse 12, they set off from Paphos. Eventually, we read down in verse 14, they come to Antioch and Pisidia. So this is a different Antioch. We were reading and dealing with Antioch in Syria before as this church, the Gentile church, came together and the Lord sent out Paul and Barnabas, different part of the world. It says, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So of course we all know Paul, all he needs is a a little opening, doesn't he? This is more than enough invitation for him. So Paul, it says he stood up and motioning with his hands, he preaches his first ever sermon. And I'd love for us this morning just to camp here for a few moments. As we launch into the missionary journey, we looked at perhaps the, the motivation that was sent by the Holy Spirit, called, appointed, anointed by him. But what was the message that they came with to proclaim? And this is one of the most detailed sermons, probably a complete message that he preached as he began this missionary journey. And what I want to notice as we read through this is he's going to begin here with history, with the history of the people of Israel. And that's in and of itself, not unusual. The, uh, the Jewish teachers of the time would often mention and refer to history. The Jews were very proud of their history. We're from Abraham. We have the law given from Moses, Abraham, Isaac, all these figures. They were very proud of their history. But rather than purely pointing to the history, so what I want us to catch is at least 15, we could suggest even more references, not just to history itself, but to the working of God in the midst of the history of the Jewish people. So he says this, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, and here's what I want to underline. Verse 17, The God, the God of this people Israel chose. So I just not start with the fathers. He said... This is, this is a story of a God who chooses. And not only did he choose, it says, This God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Already we see this framework of the working of God through history. God has chosen. God has made great. God has rescued them through his uplifted arm and led them out. And I love verse 18. It says, And for about 40 years... He put up with them, it says in the ESV. Now, there's some controversy over exactly what is being said there, but let's run with the ESV. And I, for one, am thankful that we have a God who is happy to put up with some of our stuff. The God who puts up with. So he chooses, he makes great, he leads them out, he puts up with all their stuff. For 40 years in the wilderness, it says, and after destroying the seven nations in the land of Canaan, this is the God who delivers, he gave them the land as their inheritance, the God who gives inheritance. All this took place about over 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, and they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul. Here again, God gave, and God gave, and God gave. Verse 22, and when he removed him, he raised up David. He's the God who, who raises up. I found David... In David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who would do all my will. And in verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, just as he promised. He's the God who is faithful to fulfill all that he has promised. Verse 24, before he's coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he? No. Behold, after me is coming the one who sandals... Sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those amongst us who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Let's just jump ahead to verse 32. It says, And we bring the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And he continues on. Verse 38 Let it be known, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you by him. Everyone who believes is freed from everything which could not be freed by the law of Moses. And he concludes with a, you scoffers be astounded and perish from doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if everyone tells it to you. Do not miss this. Do not miss what is he saying. Do not miss the outworking of God. See, this is fascinating because this is the first insight, the first glimpse into Paul, who's gone from the zealot, as we said, to a believer, to a teacher, to the one that the Lord would call to preach the gospel throughout the known world. And what is his message? He said, this is the reality of the work of God throughout history. This is the greatness of God's story in all its vastness, in all its grandeur, its intricacies, its definite purpose. This is His story, it's His work, it's His mission, it's His agenda. And I don't want us to miss this. You see, we kind of think, well, that makes sense and Paul's giving us a bit of a history lesson But don't take what he is trying to point out here for granted. Let it strike us as something that's a little strange. I mean, how many of us, if we were detailing the history from the last week, let alone our generations or the generations before us, would would present this centrality of the work of God? Well, it was God at the beginning, and it was God through every twist and turn and every detail, and the ultimate conclusion is all about God's purpose and plan. You see... This is something that Paul is intentionally doing to make a statement. And it's one that we need to listen to time and time again. He's simply saying this. There is a great and glorious God. There is a God who is outworking His purpose and plans in history. And He is the main worker. He is the explanation for and the meaning of everything. It is his story. It was his story from the beginning. It's his story now as the gospel is going to the Gentiles. And it will be his story until he returns again. We are caught up in the wonder of his story. That's that's effectively all that he's saying we're doing. We're just here to proclaim the salvation, this outworking of God through Christ, his death and his resurrection on the cross. And we're proclaiming to you that he's inviting each and every one of us to be caught up in his great work. See, it's a framework that he's built here of the greatness of God's story. And I believe it's something that is not only important for us, but it's something that in our modern Western churchianity and Christianity is far too rare let me make this statement here. See, I think as we have in our culture relegated faith to somewhat of a personal subjective experience, it's just about you, it's just about what you think and feel, I mean, if you want to believe something, that's fine, but it's just here. What we have done so often is we've reduced the greatness of his story to the smallness of our story. I think we've become so good in our Christian faith, even at times, our proclamation of messages, certainly our writings of books to help believers, on focusing on perhaps small little nuanced areas, whilst at the same time we've walked and wandered away from the greatness of this framework and this foundation of the work of God. Let me try and illustrate it this way. Out at uh, our property... (laughs) Just down the road from here, my current project, there's always something there. In fact, there's always more projects than I have time to count. And it frustrates my wife no end. She says, we've been there five years. She's like, every year the project list just grows and the uncompleted project list gets no smaller. There's just always projects. So the big project at the moment is building a shed. Since we've got out there, I've had this desire to have a nice man cave, and store all the toys in there. It sounds ridiculous, and you can pray for me later, but we already have a triple garage in our house, and there's not room for one car. Like, it's just full of stuff. Is anybody else in that? It's a sad admission, isn't it? I'm being honest here. So, we're building a shed. That's the solution. The slab went down last year, and I thought, well, I'll do it myself, and ordered an online kit shed and it arrived actually just before we went away on holidays a few months ago and I resisted, I had a week there, I thought I could get started, but I won't, frustrated me no end seeing all the bits and pieces sitting down there not being able to start. But the last couple of months I've been slowly working on this shed and what I discovered as I opened up all the bits and organised them um, as I thought they might be put together was that there was not one set of instructions that was provided at all with this kit shed. And I called them up and I said, surely you're supposed to give some sort of instructions. And he kind of laughed at me on the phone and said, you know, you're a man who needs instructions. Just figure it out yourself. And he did say to me, he's like, look, there's engineering drawings that we sent you, which I had to submit to the council for approval, so just run with them. So I do have the engineering drawings. The problem with the engineering drawings is that they do show some technical details, you know, it shows some of the structural rigidity of the steel components, it shows some of the elements of the bracing, but there's nothing in the engineering drawings that have been submitted that actually shows how you put the thing together. And this is not just a simple shed, it's an American barn, so it's a little bit more complex in its design and its setup and it's the the way you're supposed to put it together. So I've been literally fumbling through in the dark trying to watch YouTube videos and I've had to Recalibrate the footings three or four times to try and get them right to figure out how to make this shed stand up. But as I was doing this all, it kind of just occurred to me that so often, I think, in the kingdom of God, we're a little bit like that. We've got all this technical information on kind of some little nuanced details. Like we know the, the structure of the steel, we know this little portion, we need. We know some elements of how it works, but what we seem to have lost at times is the big picture, is this diagram of how the whole thing fits and works together. You see, let's just put this in a couple of different contexts. in the context that, um, that Paul was talking, and he's talking at this point, and it will expand from here, but he's, it says he goes into the synagogue and he talks to the Jewish people. And he's trying to build this framework and say, guys, here's the problem is that you've got certain things down pat well, which the Jewish people did. Yeah. I mean they they knew scriptures, they knew the forefathers in the faith, they knew the law, they'd they'd had it memorized often by the time that they were twelve or thirteen years of age. Like there was a lot of good stuff that they knew, and yet they'd missed the most important part, hadn't they? The ultimate example was Jesus' strolling through Jerusalem and he's like guys you know your scriptures and yet the whole thing is supposed to point to me and I'm here hello and you're missing the entire point the entire point is all of that is supposed to point to the great workings of Christ in the midst of his people and you're missing the bigger picture and the point and I think in in so many ways we fall into that same trap. It's this kind of superficial faith. It's this faith that you know, wants something small, wants something just to work. I want to know how to you know, have a, a more successful life and deal with negative thoughts and have a better marriage and whatever it might be. There's these little nuanced areas that, that we have plenty of books and materials to read, but we've missed the grandeur and the wonder of this ultimate picture. There's no declaration of the glory of God at work in the world. The wonder of His undeserved grace offered to sinners. The foundation of His faithful promise that endures and encompasses all human experience. That's what keeps us and carries us forward to His ultimate goal and conclusion. And see, there's there's nothing wrong with, you know, books on little nuanced details and practical help and self-help in different areas in and of itself. I'm not trying to suggest it is a bad thing. But what we need, I hope all of us would agree, is a faith that survives and lasts and not just endures, but is set on fire when you walk into the doctor's office and you get the, the prognosis that it's terminal cancer. There's no amount of self help that's going to help you there. It's that moment where the marriage falls apart, the wheels fall off. It's where the loved one dies. It's where the bus is overturned, and all of a sudden everything is upside down. That's when we need a faith that actually works. That's when we need a framework to rest upon. And that's what I believe we've done an injustice, particularly to a younger generation in our gospel preaching, is not giving them something that's robust enough, that's a framework and a foundation that they can actually build their lives upon, that will endure the ups and downs, the struggles and the uncertainties of life. Let me look at this from one other angle and then we'll just bring this to a a close. I love in Ephesians chapter 1, this wonderful book that Paul writes, of course, to the Ephesian church. And he says this, In 118, this is his prayer as he's about to expand the the glorious grace that's offered to us through Christ Jesus. And he says, I'm praying this, that you would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you and what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. That's his prayer as he writes this book. To enlighten means to be illuminated completely. I want you to see this in all its brilliance. I want you to be overcome by the the wonder and the majesty of the gospel. There is a wonder and a majesty to it that's just, it's bigger than sometimes what we reduce it to, which is just kind of helping me have a better week, just get through the week and be the best person I can be. And my concern is that we're missing out on the, the glorious grandeur of the gospel. See, the best that secular humanism and atheism and any other godless worldview can offer is a paper-thin superficiality. By definition, there is no greater purpose or greater meaning. There just isn't. In other words, if you're struggling for meaning, for purpose, and you're a secular humanist or an atheist or any of those similar worldviews, It's because you're thinking too much. Because there is no ultimate purpose. It's just all random. It's it's accident. Why am I working? Well, working to provide money. Why do I need money? Well, to have a house. Well, why do I need a house? Well, so you can have a shelter. Well, why am I even alive? No, don't go there. That's too much. Don't ask those big questions. But you see, it's the opposite for the believer. There is a wonder to the gospel that encompasses everything. Rather than nothing meaning everything, everything means something. In other words, if you're a believer, there's a framework here. If you're struggling for, for meaning and purpose, the answer is not to well, just think less, don't ask those questions. The truth is you're not thinking enough. You've just lost sight of the, the God, as we sung about, who is at work, the miracle working God. He never fails or falters. He is accomplishing His purposes and His plans. There is a wonder to the gospel that should captivate us, that should compel us, that should leave us breathless. Too often we're drinking from the waters of pragmatism. We're reducing the gospel down to mere human endeavor and wondering why we're constantly thirsty and never satisfied, versus drinking from the living waters of life, then building our lives upon this framework that actually lasts. You don't need to be afraid to lean on it. There's no questions that you cannot ask God and find illumination and hope. And as we prayed earlier, the capacity to take heart, Even when we're persecuted, afflicted, confused, down, discouraged, there is an answer that we can find through the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we get someone back? Worship team or Adam? I want to just finish with this. And this is really my heart as I've kind of prayed for us this morning. The thing that we would... Grab a hold of and it's always interesting, I'm always encouraged when you feel something on your heart and then the Lord confirms it through just the focus of worship and the emphasis of the service. But the sense I had for us this morning was, it's a little bit like this, we had a, a moment as a family just a couple of months ago, went on a holiday, it was our first road trip as a family for many years, I think prior to kids, my wife and I believe it or not, we're very adventurous. We used to always go different places and since we had little kids, it was always just let's just find somewhere that works and just go there because we are exhausted and we're tired and we just need something that, that's going to work. And so we've done that for probably the last decade at least and then this year we decided to, to head up north and visit some family who were here this morning actually, Paul and Al, great to have you guys with us visiting from Munderberg. but um, we were up there visiting Paul and Al and then, because we'd gone that far north, decided to go a bit further and head up past uh, Rockhampton, Yapoon, across the Great Keppel, various other spots. So it wasn't a part of the, the uh, country that we'd been to before. And uh, I remember actually travelling as a little kid and, and having all these maps. Like, you'd, you'd have to do all this research beforehand, and you'd mark out the different maps. And these days, of course, it's all electronic. It's amazing how dependent you become upon the electronic maps. And we have a slightly older car that doesn't have a, a GPS navigation system. We, um, in fact, even the charging ports in the car don't work. So every day we had to charge up the devices, and we had a few, had an I- iPad for the kids, we had a phone, that we had all the maps navigating the next course of the, uh, the particular trip. Which worked fantastically until I think we were about half an hour out of Rockhampton And we realized we didn't have enough power left in the devices to power the GPS to get us where we needed to go. So all of a sudden, we were rationing power. It's first world problem, isn't it? But um, had to tell the poor kids they couldn't watch their movie anymore because we needed power in the iPad, and we're literally turning the phone on and off just to try and conserve enough battery power, thinking. We're gonna get stuck out here in the middle of nowhere. And it's not like driving up the coast when we've been there before where it's one highway and it's pretty easy to find your way. We're taking little little roads, which was, was a great adventure, except when you run out of power on your GPS and you feel like you're about to get stuck in the middle of nowhere with no idea how to get where you need to go. Now to cut a long story short, we did make it. We survived, we made it through. But the thought was simply this in the midst of that particular moment. And I had that sense this morning that there might be some of us. And you feel you're kind of in one of those spaces and seasons where perhaps it's unfamiliar territory. Perhaps it's not. Perhaps it's somewhere you've been before. But it's like either the power's completely gone and I've completely lost my bearings. Or I feel like I'm right on the edge, like I'm just, I'm just running out. I'm really struggling to know what it is and where it is that I'm supposed to be going. And I'll pray for you. Can we just close our eyes? So I believe there is a, a sense this morning that the Lord's wanting to just remind us that He is... He is the God who leads, He is the God who guides, He is the God who makes the path forward clear. He's not the the author of confusion, He's the God of peace. He's the God who's been at work since the beginning of history will be the God who is continuing to, to carry on and complete his purposes and plans in our lives until the day that we stand before him. That even in those moments where it feels like perhaps we can't see what it is that he's doing, we can trust. We can have that assurance that he is at work. But particularly this morning, for those people and you feel like there's something in that picture that just resonates with you. I'm, I'm here and I just, I just don't know anymore. I don't know which way to go. Maybe it is for, for some of us that you're in that place and actually you've, you've never met the one who is the light of the world. You've never known what it is to have your eyes open to the the reality and the greatness of his love for you and his plan for your life. That you feel like you're there, you're completely lost and this morning is an opportunity for you just to say, you know what, that's what I need. I've tried it my own way and I need to come back to that reality of trusting in Jesus and who he is and what he's done one who loves you and it's never forsaken. Maybe for other, others of us this morning, it's not that sense of you've, you've never known his direction but there's just that reminder this morning of needing to be a people who are aware of the big picture. Maybe the, the battery charge on the GPS has run flat and this morning is a moment of, okay, I've got, to, I've got to get back there, I've got to recharge it, I've got to get my bearings again that i have been kind of wandering around aimlessly and if you're in either of those two categories this morning i'd love to just pray with you it's an opportunity this morning for for prayer for anything and everything prayer teams who'd love to pray with you but particularly that sense of you just you're needing that direction So I just want to pray for all of us and then I'll invite you forward for those who'd like to to come and receive prayer. So Father, just thank you for this passage of Scripture that we've read as as Paul just outlines the, the framework of the glorious plan and purpose of God. We thank you that there's that reality for us, that we can know that you're a God who is always at work. You have been at work You always will be at work. And I pray that we would be people who have eyes to see. Lord, save us and preserve us. Keep us from a small-minded Christianity that just reduces the glory and the grandeur of the gospel to something that's about us. To some little private, subjective portion of our life rather than this objective, life-altering magnificent proclamation and declaration and reality of your work through Christ Jesus that changes everything. Help us to never lose sight of that grandeur and wonder of the gospel. And may that be the very thing that captivates and compels us in our lives, we pray. We ask that in your wonderful name.